Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hey, welcome to today's podcast. A couple of things to go over. As always, don't forget to join us over on Facebook. Just search for Dog Talk with Nick Benger Podcast Discussion Group. Request to join. That's where we have conversations about the podcast. And that's just where kind of the community of the podcast hangs out. The other thing is this podcast is sponsored by Butternut Box. Butternut Box are a really cool, healthy, natural dog food that is all made with the freshest ingredients it's home-cooked, it's perfectly portioned and delivered to your door, and it's brilliant for dogs that are fussy eaters or have sensitive stomachs. And it's one of the few dog foods that has a five-star rating on All About Dog Food. So to get 75% off your first order, go to butternutbox.com slash nickbenger. Now, I'm a little bit nervous about this one, to be honest, because this is uh, just so important to me because Bob Bailey is an absolute animal training legend. He played a huge part in the history of animal training. He was involved with training military animals in the US. He worked alongside the Breelands in their animal training. And in this podcast, we spoke about the history of animal training. And Bob shared some of his own stories about training animals, how he got into it, and also his friendship with Walt Disney. So this is a this is a really special one, and you'll have to forgive me for my nerves throughout because uh, anyone that is a geek when it comes to animal training will know just how much of a legend Bob Bailey is. So I won't hold you up anymore. Let's get into it. So, I mean, in terms of starting places... It seems to now. I know that you, you know you're part of a, a more wider picture when it comes to animal training, and maybe I'm in my own little bubble when it comes to dog training. So, as far as the history of dog training goes back, it seems to me like th- there wasn't really a lot recorded before, say, World War One. Uh, well, you would have to go back to uh, Roman times to really find some records on on dog training now. They talked about dog training. They talked about horse training, lion training, lots of other things. But there's a, um, I'll say, a fair amount of data back there uh, describing what they did. Okay, because, I I mean, one of the things that I do know about is the training of mastiffs to run under horses to try and get the, you know, they had the blades attached and trying to essentially kill horses in in war and stuff. I've, I've heard of that, but I don't know a great deal about dog training in Roman times? Well, uh, let's go even earlier than that. Uh, They have from uh, Mesopotamia and from other places, oh, about uh, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, they've got some uh, beautiful uh, wall murals, and I wouldn't call them murals, paintings of dogs uh, uh, attacking people. Oh, really? And uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, this... (laughs) <laughs> we've been doing this a long time and uh that has always been uh uh it, it it to me it's kind of sad because uh the 
technology was good enough then that dogs were used for guard work. Dogs were used for attack. Dogs were used to smell out things, uh, looking for people and uh, uh, looking for water and, and other things. And so what's so good about what we're doing now? Uh, what's so different? Now, there are some things that have come to light in the last, let's say, 20 years or so. But by and large, we have been doing the same thing now, uh, you know, six, seven, ten thousand years. Who knows? Uh, what's interesting also, and I don't know the details. I've been trying to dig into the details, but they've uncovered a cave in France that goes back between 40,000 and 50,000 years. And they've got cave paintings. And from what I understand, it looks like there are dogs uh, with animals uh, back that far. So, you know, I'm really looking for the information on that one. That would set training way far back. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. And do you know if they were training any other kinds of animals back then? Uh, I mean, Uh, falconry comes to mind. Now, uh, now the Romans were the Romans. Uh, you you know the Colosseum and uh, the circus, the Roman circus. So they were training lots of different kinds of animals to do some things, and a lot of them not very nice things. Oh, I didn't realize but, that they trained the animals in a Colosseum. I thought it was more of a case of just kind of letting them fight each other. Oh no, no, they had bowing uh, elephants and. Uh, uh, you know, lions trained to lie quietly and, and this sort of thing. No, they had lots of trained animals back then. Oh, wow. So that's really interesting because I thought that training was a much more modern invention. Uh, no, like, no, it's not. Like I said, I, I can't remember where I came across it, but I was reading about the first kind of training manuals were written around World War One. is what I read, which might be entirely wrong <laughs> based on what you just told me. Well, uh, let's say they were the first ones to be popularized. I don't think too many people were reading Latin uh, so that uh, it didn't get publicized what they were doing way back when. And besides some of the things that they were doing back in Roman times, as I said, were not very nice things. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, yeah, that's absolutely fascinating because I didn't know that. And, I mean, where did you... Where did you, you know, start getting involved in this, or where did you? Who were the people that you learned from? Well, uh, I presumably not Romans. <laughs> huh? Presu- no, no, I didn't know the Romans personally. <laughs> I, I'm old, but not that old. Uh, no, uh, I've always been interested in animal behavior, and uh, even as a little kid, uh, and and. One of the you know little stories I tell on myself is uh, when I lived in Michigan, um, I was about oh five or six, and I was on the stoop on the front porch, uh, and there would be a row of ants uh, going along on the edge of the porch, and I once drugged my finger through the column of ants and found that it stopped them. And they would actually go around uh, where I had moved my finger and then they reformed the column. And now the column was there, except that there was this little uh, change of direction where I'd moved my finger. 
So I did that several times and found that I could stop the column, they would reform, and I could do this again repeatedly. And I just was fascinated by that. Why were these ants doing this and how was I affecting the ants? Well, I vaguely remember doing this. My mother remembers it very well. My laying out on the porch for literally hours, uh, <laughs> let's say, uh, changing the pathway of this uh, column of ants. Oh, wow. So it started way back then. Yeah, so th- uh, that's, that's interesting that you had an interest in animal training from such an early age. Yes, well, I'm not sure I'd call that animal training. Well, uh, <laughs> manipulation. I, I was certainly in- interrupting and changing behavior. I was certainly doing that. But uh, uh, it, it extended to the time where I was growing up in the San Fernando Valley. And uh, in those days, in the 1940s, the San Fernando Valley was kind of a uh, combination desert and what we called a truck farm, where there were lots of these uh, small farms raising fruits and vegetables and that sort of thing. And uh, it was really wilderness country, and I used to wander a lot, and I collected animals, snakes, uh, <laughs> things like scorpions and, uh, and the like. Uh, and I would keep them for a while and then turn them loose. I was just interested in what they did. So, so were you just so, watching them, or were you trying to change their behavior? Oh, I, well? I was not trying any training. I did not think particularly of training and I was just watching the animals. And if I might interject here, and it's probably a good a point as any, I think that was probably one of the advantages I've had over many trainers. In other words, they have set out to change behavior. I set out to just watch behavior. And it wasn't until much, much later in my life that I started actually going about changing behavior but I was able to see behavior, I think, uh, quite precisely by then. So I would say I'm going to change it in a particular way, and I could actually see the changes taking place. And uh, I think I had a little leg up on that one, uh, simply by accident and not particularly by design. It just turned out that way. So you, were you keeping animals then f- throughout your life? Well, yes, but not as pets, not the way people think as pets. I've never owned a dog before in my life, and uh, my mother hated dogs, uh, literally. Uh, She really did not want them around the house. So uh, it wasn't that I had pets like, uh, you know, you keep a pet turtle or something like that. I would have animals for fairly short periods of time and then turn them loose. I guess I had a kind of a feeling of not wanting to have animals in cages all the time because they they didn't do very much in a cage. And I found out when I watched animals outside, they did lots of things. So, it, so it, uh, I meant kind of like going into adulthood. Were you, were you still in this kind of uh, hobby of animal collecting? Uh, well, kind of, yes. Uh, but let's say... Uh, I hope on a little more sophisticated st- uh, scale. Uh, uh, while I was at the university, uh, UCLA, that uh, I collected animals for the university. Uh, there were lots of researchers who needed particular types of animals, and I had 
trot uh, or uh, you'd call them uh, oh, trap lines or something where I would have these um, Harvard uh, traps uh, for kangaroo rats and other small animals. But they were, I was being paid to do that. So I was just doing that uh, for money, for the fun of it. Uh, it gave me lots of time to trudge around the desert and study animals. Because, uh, you know, once you set a trap line of 100, 120 traps, uh, you you visited about every, oh, three or four hours to collect the animals that have been trapped. Yep. So that gave you lots of time to try to, you know, look around. Yeah, I know a lot of people kind of, uh, in the early days of, of kind of, uh, their careers in animal stuff got, got involved in that kind of collecting. Like, I know that David Attenborough did a lot of that kind of stuff, who, the, the, who went on to make a lot of documentaries. He's a bit of a legend in Britain. Got involved in that kind of animal collecting. So sure. was that a local thing for you or was that a, was that a case of traveling between countries collecting animals? Well, later on, I went down to Mexico uh, and Central America, some other places, but mostly uh, over the uh, western, particularly southwestern United States and uh, northern Mexico is where I spent most of my time. So when did you start training the animals? Well, uh, well that kind of just happened, you might say. Um, I had been watching... Uh, coyotes uh, in uh, the desert, the Mojave Desert. Uh, it's just outside of Palmdale, California, if you want to locate it uh, geographically. That uh, I uh, I watched them as they traveled in the desert, going to three particular places. Uh, there were three large alfalfa fields. That's a, a green plant that they use for animal feed. Um, and where you have alfalfa, you have rabbits. And where you have rabbits out in the desert, you have coyotes. So I started watching how they did their little thing. I watched them for several months. And then I decided maybe could I influence how they traveled. So I started laying out dead rabbits and I found that I could influence how they traveled and what direction they would travel. So I set out with a program uh, with nothing more than uh, rags, uh, torn off strips of rags tied to uh, creosote bushes, uh, the common uh, bush out in the uh, uh, Mojave Desert. I would hang down these strips and at the bottom uh, hang below the strip or laying below the strip would be a dead rabbit. So I started moving these strips uh, so that the so that the coyotes would have to go further and further to get to the dead rabbit. Well, I did this over about eight or nine months and by the time I finished, I could influence 85% of the time to what of the three fields I wanted the, uh, the uh, coyotes to go. I did not call that training. I refuse to consider that as training because to me a uh, trainer is somebody with a gun, a whip, and a chair, and there's a lion there on a chair and a 
or a stool, and uh, that to me was animal training. But uh, I guess by the time it all finished and I realized that I was actually controlling what these animals were doing, I had to admit I was training. Um, I did that because, or I, I had to admit it because I, by this time, was reading Skinner and uh, about the Brelands and other uh, books on training and about animal behavior, the control of animal behavior. And I realized I was controlling animal behavior. Well, So I did that for uh, about a year. Well, that's uh, obviously one of the things we want to talk about as well is obviously the history of animal training. So those kind of like pivotal people that you just mentioned, you know, Skinner and the Braylons and, you know, those those are people that we look back on now as being the pioneers of, of this field. So, um, yeah, so I'm just interested in, in the people that you learned from and maybe if you could pick out some people that really played a heavy role in, in getting us to where we are today in animal training. Well, in, in terms of influence, uh, by far the greatest influence were Keller and Marion Breland. Uh, no question about it. Now, I read a lot of other stuff and I met a few other people, but uh, they were the ones where uh, I really picked up, let's say, the subtleties uh, and the principles of, uh, of training. The Breland's, far more than any other uh, um, information source, uh, influenced what I did and, and how I did it. Uh, the only thing that I really brought to the field that was really different was this, uh, uh, let's say, spending lots of time in the field, my biological uh, experiences, and also the fact that uh, I was heavily involved in physics and, and other physical sciences, let's say. So uh, this kind of prepared me to fit right into what the Breelands had been doing, and that is things such as automation, uh, production, training, uh, and the like. But the very idea of being able to train animals so precisely, uh, I got that from the Breelands. Uh, there's no question about it. And they had a facility, didn't they, where they trained animals and they took data and all of that? Yes. Uh, they started in Minnesota uh, in uh, 1943. There's... Uh, quite a story about uh, them working with Skinner and, uh, and they were his graduate students and there was a, a project called Pelican. It had to do with training pigeons to guide bombs and uh, Skinner put this together very rapidly uh, by April of 42 he had made the proposal and by november they were already having pigeons guiding crude uh devices uh so they did things pretty fast in those days uh they changed behavior quickly there they were precise and uh let's say uh they knew what they wanted and they knew how to get it and i'm talking about skinner and the Breelands. Well, this was part of the war effort, wasn't it, to, to do this with the pigeons? Yes, it was. Yes, this was a Navy project. As I said, it was called Pelican. And uh, they, they ended up putting them in the nose cone of a bomb uh, 
but it was never dropped in anger, let's say, uh, but it was guided. Uh, they had these tall towers where uh, devices could be released, and it was for training of uh, bombardiers, people who dropped the bombs from the airplanes. And uh, the pigeons were quite precise. Their first targets were ships at sea. It was a Navy project. But later on, they could uh, actually go to railroad tracks or to trains themselves, uh, particular buildings. Uh, there's lots of things that they trained the pigeons to home in on. So and uh, the, the History um, Channel actually has a, uh, uh, a program on this. If anybody is interested in seeing the detail of it, yeah, definitely have to find that. So, were the I'm a little bit confused. Did the missile follow the pigeon? Uh, no, the pigeon was inside the missile. There were three of them, three pigeons, uh, and uh, there was a screen in front of each pigeon, and the pigeon was uh, or the uh, the screen was on what's called a gimbal. So that if the uh, bomb was drifting, let's say, to the right, uh, the pigeon could see what was in front. There was a, uh, an actual optical system here where it was projected, let's say, a ship down there. It was projected on this screen, and the pigeon would keep pecking at the ship. And if the ship got off to one side, the gimbal would send a piece of information to the tail fins uh, telling to correct to the other direction to bring the ship back to the center. And these three pigeons would be working away, keeping this uh, bomb aimed towards the target. Wow, that's absolutely crazy. Now, now, all I can say is think of the time. By 1943, they were already in, inside the bomb, let's say, and they didn't start until um, uh, the middle of 1942, and they were actually guiding things by the end of 1942. So th they knew what they were doing. Uh, they were all just a bunch of kids. Even Skinner was pretty young at the time. But they knew what they were doing, and they were very articulate already in the principles of operant conditioning. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. And that didn't actually end up getting used in the end, did it? No, I said it was never dropped in anger. Uh, it was tested a number of times, but the military said they really just couldn't <laughs> couldn't believe it. Uh, it was a uh, well, as they put it in the video, there, there was a lack of trust in uh, Skinner and his project, even though it worked many, many times uh, in the tower that they never dropped one in anger. Am I right in thinking that you tested that as well? Uh, were you involved in some... Or am I thinking of something separate where you tested some training for the military with pigeons? Oh, uh, we did a lot of work with, with pigeons for military and, as they call it, governmental agencies. Um, yes, we, we did an ambush detection system uh, much later. This was in the 60s for Vietnam. Oh, okay, because I can't remember if it was you or someone else that told me a, a story about um, a pigeon coming up to you when you were kind of supposed to be hiding and recording something. Oh no, that that, that was me, and I've got the 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 film of this, and it's it's really quite humorous if you understand what's going on. Um, that 
the system itself was a pigeon released from a uh, vehicle, and this was a uh, one of the lead vehicles in a convoy. And the pigeons were looking for things on the side of the road, uh, and I say whether it was people uh, or whether it was objects on the side of the road. Uh, I, I'm vague on this because we never determined exactly what the pigeon was detecting. Uh, that uh, a, a fellow by the name of Hernstein, uh, Richard Hernstein from Harvard, had done a previous study on pigeons recognizing human artifact. Now, you know, what is a human artifact? Uh, they never really decided exactly what the pigeon was detecting. But you could have a tree there that um, looked like a tree. And yet, if you put a pipe or some other uh, object, uh, manufactured object, hum- human manufactured object, the pigeon could detect that and exactly how we don't know. Uh, Hernstein never did decide. Well, using this idea of uh, human artifact, uh, we trained pigeons to locate things or people on the side of the road. And they had to be so many meters away. They had to be laying down or hidden behind a bush. Um, Later on, we tried just uh, gun barrels. We tried uh, tin cans. We tried lots of things. And the pigeon was absolutely great at detecting these things. And it became the basis of this ambush detection system. So so you, you tried to record this, didn't you? Uh, well, yes, uh, I, I did several times. Uh, uh, there is a video out. It's There's a video called uh, Patient Like the Chipmunks. It's something I produced many, many years ago. And it shows a pigeon making a detection, uh, flying out ahead of a truck and making a detection. Now, at one instance, I decided I wanted to get at the other end of the detection. In other words, where the person was rather than at the release point at the truck. So I had the guys bury me in stuff, uh, branches and the like. And the only thing sticking out was the lens of my uh, uh, camera. It was uh, an 8 millimeter camera. And it was just sticking out of a bunch of bushes. And the actual detection, the guy uh, that they were supposed to be going after, was about, I'd say, 5 meters, 10 meters away from me, uh, about, about 30 feet or so. And so I'm waiting patiently behind all of these bushes. And I see the pigeon begin to uh, approach me flying, uh, coming off of the road. But instead of going over to the person to be detected, the pigeon was coming to me, finally landing in front of me and walking right into the camera. It's, uh, it was quite an interesting sight. <laughs> so, uh, and, and again, there, there was nothing, no one could see me. 
And it was only if they looked very, very, very carefully up close could they see the camera itself. Well, the road itself was probably, uh, oh, I'd say 50 feet, 60 feet away from where I was. So I was some distance off the road. Yeah, so this is incredibly effective then. Yes, uh, they were very good at what they were supposed to be doing. We took them to uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and uh, tested them out with Special Forces troops. So, so where did this kind of interest in animal training come from initially? Because, I mean, we were talking earlier about animal training in Roman times and stuff like that. Um, but it seems like there's... And tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems like there was a renewed kind of interest in it around kind of Skinner and uh, the Breelands and, and, and stuff like that. Is that right or am I wrong there? Well, I don't know if there was any increased interest in training at the time of Skinner or um, uh, anything having to do with Skinner himself. Uh, that the vast majority of the uh, American population really had no idea who Skinner was. Uh, but people were keeping pets. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think as the country became more affluent, and I, I think this is a worldwide phenomenon, just not American, that uh, with this affluence, uh, more pets. And when you get a pet in the household, pretty soon you realize that uh, the pet has to have some sort of rules uh, to go by in order to live amongst humans. And uh, that's where training really began to uh, become important. Now, there was training even before that, of course. Uh, You know, people were training their pet dogs and the like. But having the idea of a place like New York City where people have lots of dogs uh, and, you know, not every person, but so many people had dogs in their apartment. That, I'd say, is a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, Not that they didn't have dogs. They had dogs, certainly. But the idea of most people having dogs and cats and the like, uh, that, I think, is where training became more and more popular. And, And I'll say not just popular but necessary yeah i guess what i meant as well is kind of you had like a lot of this the science and the actual information coming around that kind of time you know like you had Thorndike and skinner and the breelands and and all of these people whereas before i think a lot of training was kind of there was a lot of kind of mythology surrounding it as well wasn't there well i'm afraid that the mythology is still there um that uh most of animal training that goes on, all you have to do is look in the telephone directory right now, uh, and you see that uh, most of it is still based on a lot of mythology. Uh, not that there aren't people out there who uh, have some science behind what they're doing, but the uh, the vast majority, well, I'll say that, uh, used to be the vast majority was certainly not science-based. Well, there are more people today uh, that uh, have some scientific basis in their training, but it, it's not not what a lot of people would like, uh, including myself. Uh, that most of training is still done um, uh, just uh, by mythology. Uh, what kind of what kind of things are you referring to there? Because 
Um, I don't know. I don't know how the... Do you find that globally as well? Because obviously you travel around a lot. Do you, do you find that certain places are more up to date than others? Well, yes, I certainly do. Um, I find that there, and it's usually in pockets, uh, that there are places in Europe uh, where indeed uh, they are quite advanced in their training. Uh, there's a lot of places where they're not. And um, when you go into the third world uh, countries, that uh, they certainly um, are, are way behind, let's say, in the technology, the application of the science technology of, of animal training. And here in the United States, it's, it's quite a mixed bag. Um, I, I know they have all of these seminars and workshops and, and the like, but there's a lot of people that really don't attend those, that they have learned from somebody who has learned from someone, and they hang out a shingle, says dog trainer, and, and they're training dogs. And uh, they may even say that they're science-based because they have been told that if you don't say you're science-based, that not that many people will come to you. Um, they just use it in their advertising. But when you look at their training – you see that it is based on the old mythology of, you know, domination and, uh, you know, the, the alpha dog and all, all this sort of thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and one other thing I wanted to touch on as well, because we've spoke quite a bit now about military training and, and the animal training that goes on there. But there's also, of course, the whole thing of training for entertainment purposes, um, like one of the big ones, of course, is, is film um mm -hmm. like you know you, you in the earlier days you, you know you, you had animals trained for like the wizard of oz and uh like some of the jack london stuff and i and i know that you were involved in in that as well to a degree and i was wondering if you could share any of your thoughts on that well we never got very much involved in uh movie uh movie animal training um we were located so far from the coast. Now, we were approached by lots of people uh, about training uh, for movies, but it would require us moving to either the East Coast or the West Coast, and we rejected that. Uh, we never particularly got uh, terribly involved. We did a lot of commercials where it was you know, fast in, fast out uh, sorts of things. And we had uh, – uh, uh, Walt Disney wanted us to train for him, but it would involve establishing ourselves again on the West Coast. And we were just not prepared to uh, move our location. Uh, we were quite happy doing what we were doing. Uh, I thought that you said that you were quite good friends with Walt Disney. Yeah, well, he visited us a number of times. Um a really nice guy. He really liked our animals. He watched our animals being trained and watched a number of, of things going. But uh, we never really did uh, a uh, a movie with uh, with Walt. Um, it, it would just have involved too much a, a relocation on our part. We didn't want to do that. Oh, well, that's interesting as well because obviously he's a very, very famous person, kind of iconic as well. And – I would just imagine, I mean, you tell me what he was like a little bit, because I imagine that, you know, being that he built this massive empire that is Disney, that he would be quite um, adamant once he's, you know, seen your animals that he wanted you to, 
to do the training for him. Well, yes, he he was uh, he was really a, a a nice guy. I just call it that. <laughs> uh, that uh, he would always uh, when when he came, it would be an entourage, of course, and uh, he you could tell he was a guy with ideas. That when he would watch uh, us do our training, that he would. Uh, keep describing how he could use this, that, and the other thing in, in whatever it is that he was doing or wanted to do. And so much of what he talked about is what he wanted to do. Uh, he was a great idea man and um, uh, had one real funny instance and showed his, his rather good sense of humor that uh, we were showing, uh, Walt, how it was possible to quickly teach um, – odor identification, a discrimination. And we were working with uh, little pigs called javelinas. They're uh, uh, small pigs. Uh, they're a wild breed. And we were hiding objects uh, in this uh, in sandboxes around this cage. And we're all lined up. It was Roy Disney and uh, Walt Disney and, and other guys and ourselves there. It was myself, uh, Grant Evans, uh, our technical director, and Marion. We're all standing there, and uh, this pig was doing very beautiful discriminations. And then for some reason or another, the, the pig decided it wanted to come over and, uh, and meet us. Now, when javelinas uh, and lots of wild pigs uh, – want to mark their territory, they spray something from the base of their tail. It's a rather odiferous, uh, horrible-smelling stuff, orange in color. And uh, we were all used to this, uh, the pigs coming over and wanting to mark you for, for their territory. So the pig was coming over to us, and Marion wasn't paying that much attention, I'm afraid, Grant Evans and myself, we knew what was happening, so we t stepped back in a, a big step. <laughs> and everyone else was standing there, and this pig cut loose all over Walt Disney's pants and shoes. Oh, my days. And, uh, oh, goodness. <laughs> and, and he looked down at, at this, and uh, Grant and I were just having a hard time. We were busting our guts trying to keep from laughing. And Marion was very unhappy with us that we didn't say anything um but anyway um uh, uh, he had to go in and wash up wash his shoes and his, wipe it off his pants and everything but he was very good humored about the whole thing he said uh something about you know now i belong to the pig or something like that, so. <laughs> that's amazing yeah that's yeah that's mm -hmm. that's absolutely incredible uh mm -hmm. yeah that's interesting that he he was quite down to earth then by the sounds of it Yes, 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 he was. Um, I wish all of his other people uh, were that way. That, But uh, as it turned out, uh, that it, they were also important, the other fellows that were with him, uh, Roy Disney and, and the other, because it turned out to be bean counting was the most important anyway. Uh, that's how he built his empire, uh, with his wonderful ideas and people who uh, knew how to let's say, produce those ideas and do it within budget. Yeah, yeah, sure. So what do you mean by bean counting? What's that? Oh, bean count. I, I mean accountants. Oh, An accountant I haven't heard counter. that term before. 
That's new to me. No, that's that. That's a common American term for an accountant. Oh, there you go. Is a bean counter. Oh, I haven't heard that. See, the other thing I wanted to ask you about as well, because it seemed well, there's so much I wanted to ask you about. But how did you first get involved with the Breelands? How did you first meet them, and how did that happen? Well, I had known about them, uh, as I've already described. I read about them uh, when I was particularly doing this work with the coyotes. Um, I had decided that there was uh, this coyote work, this outdoor work. And by the way, I I also replicated that work with wood rats and with uh, kangaroo rats. So I did it with a number of animals over about a year, year and a half. And... Uh, decided that was, um, let's say, invested, (laughs) I had to invest too much in it, driving all the way out there, spending long hours, and it depended on my setting trap lines and the like. I wasn't always doing that, but uh, it it just took a lot of time. So I decided I would transfer my work to a a more laboratory-like environment, and I was getting information now from uh, Skinner, from uh, a guy by the name of Watson, J.B. Uh, John Watson. And uh, learning how to set things up in a laboratory. So I was also caring for animals in the uh, UCLA uh, collection. And they were fish of different kinds. There were salamander, well, uh, amphibians of different kinds. Uh, reptiles, uh, lots of snakes, some of which I had collected myself. So I decided I would start training them rather than uh, going outside and training. Uh, So I would spend my lunch hours and breaks uh, in the uh, graduate student lounge. And I had these terraria and aquaria all spread around. And these animals like squid, octopus, as I say, different kinds of fishes, and I would train them to do things. Um, I'd be eating my lunch, and um, I used uh, shrimp uh, and uh, different types of uh, worms uh, for reinforcement. And I would tap the aquarium or the terrarium with my fork. Uh, that would be the uh, bridging stimulus, what was called a conditioned reinforcer. Uh, to speed up the training, to indicate to the animal that it had done correctly. So I trained octopus to go through uh, barriers to solve problems. Um, Well, they could already solve problems. I just gave them the problem to solve. (laughs) And to me, that's an important point. We keep telling ourselves that we are teaching these animals to do these things. The vast majority of everything that we teach the animals, they already know how to do these things. It is where they do it and when they do it that we teach them. So we have to have some humility while we're doing this. And I guess I learned that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So how how did you go from there to meeting the Breelands? Well, uh, I graduated from school. I I was involved in the military all the time. I, I served my time in the military. I got out. And uh, became a biochemist. Now, my, my background is physics, chemistry, and biology. And uh, uh, I got this job at the UCLA School of Medicine as a biochemist. And I did that for a couple of years. 
And one day I'm walking in the hallway and I see a bulletin on the bulletin board saying uh, that the government was advertising for a biologist uh, to be the director of training of the U.S. Navy Dolphin Program. Now, I'd never trained a dolphin before in my life. I've, I'd seen him at sea. I'd see him in uh, a marine land, uh, but I'd never really trained one before. But I applied for the job. And uh, exactly why, I do not know, but I got the job. And when you figure that, uh, you know, a few thousand people applied for the job, that uh, for some reason that I don't know, I got the job. And the Navy had hired the Brelands as their chief science consultants for behavior. And I got to work with the Brelands, which was just absolutely incredible. Um, so that's how I met the Breelands. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's really cool. And actually, I think I've read about the the work you did with dolphins, if I remember rightly, because again, that was involved with the military as as well, wasn't it? Was that again to do with targeting? Uh, well, yes, um, uh, we we targeted. Um, uh, the real thing that the Navy was interested in is communication, uh, talking with the dolphin. Um, there were uh, people that were uh, involved with what you could call communication work. There was a guy by the name of John Lilly who was a popular writer. Yeah, he was part of the, uh, the Eli Lilly uh, drug company group. Uh, he was a, uh, a doctor, and uh, he worked with dolphins, and uh, – he wanted to talk to dolphins, and the Navy got very interested in this. So part of our project was an offshoot of that. Uh, the director of the, uh, uh, let's see, uh, it's NOTS, Naval Ordnance Test Station, China Lake. Uh, the director there wanted to talk with dolphins. So that's how the project got started, is talking with dolphins. <laughs> what do you mean by talking with dolphins? That's a well, I, I mean that uh, Lily wanted to do it quite literally. Uh, you set up a conversation and you whistle back and forth and you know what each other means. You have a, a common vocabulary and you have a conversation. That's what he had in mind. Do you, do you think that that's possible? That sounds very uh, out Well, there. almost anything is possible. The probability, let's say, is quite low, I would say. <laughs> well, that kind of brings us on to yeah, – we... sorry. Interrupt. Well, we don't, we don't have much common experience with the dolphin. Well, that was my thinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah, I, I imagine it would be very difficult. To sure, but, but, but uh, uh, again, uh, there is a form of communication that by the time uh, we finished our work with dolphins uh, over you know, a couple of decades, that uh, it was possible to send some pretty elaborate messages telling dolphins to do some pretty complex things. What kind of things did you teach them to do? Uh, well, part of it I can't describe, but uh, some of it is, uh, you know, go find a mine somewhere or something. Okay. Yeah, so. yeah, because I, re I remember um, someone telling me about your work with dolphins with the mines and um, you talking about keep going signals and how they were originally intended because a lot of people use them for very short durations when you intended them for very long durations. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Uh, and 
most of the time, uh, the use of a keep going signal is not really uh, necessary. The animal can figure out what it should be doing over a fairly short period of time, even in complex environments. Uh, the animals are not stupid, and they uh, they can master rather complex behaviors. I'm not talking just about dolphins, but lots of animals. Uh, but when you're going to be controlling uh, a dolphin over 10, 12 hours, and the distances are measured in kilometers, uh, now it starts getting to be a little difficult, and you want to maintain rather precise control. And that's where the keep going signal really fits in quite well. Yeah, that makes total sense. So, so were you, or was your team the first to use keep going signals then? Well, I, I won't say the first. I have no idea uh, if anybody in the dark, dim past of, of animal training uh, 100, 200, 1,000 years ago, uh, it, you know, they could have used something like that maybe. But as far as I know, we were the first ones to, uh, to do that. The other so I, I, I have this, this problem when people ask about the first and the biggest and the most and, and the like. And all I can do is say, I think so. But, uh, gee, there's been so many good people uh, that have been so clever over uh, you know, a few thousand years here. Uh, I have no idea of uh, the, the most complex behavior that the Romans did. But my guess, it was pretty complicated. Where, whereabouts have you found this information about all of this training over thousands of years? Is that, is that somewhere that we can go and find? Uh, yes, and uh, gee, I'm sorry I didn't look up the reference, of, but there's a uh, fellow uh, in um, – uh, there's one in Minnesota and one in Michigan uh, who actually wrote quite a bit about the history of animal training and from a technical sense. Maybe that's and something we can. I'll I'll have to dig up that information and I can uh, email it to you. Yeah, that would be great because uh, we can just include it in the show notes then, and people can find it. Yeah, uh, it's uh, uh, it's rather fascinating what they really have been doing over um, uh, all of these years. Yeah, absolutely. Because, like I said, you know, I've been training animals for a long time, and I didn't realize that it went back that far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's uh, incredible. But I guess that's part of what you wanted to get across today, isn't it? Because, you know, you were talking about the importance of people understanding the history of animal training. Well, let's just say that uh, to me, and, and it's always been so with me, that animal training is a technology. I am a mechanic. <laughs> that's what I look at myself. I'm a good mechanic. But I use physical principles to do what I do. And uh, I say physical principles. Uh, now, neurology is, is becoming uh, what psychology would like to be. And that is uh, the neurologists are learning more and more about animal behavior and what controls or influences animal behavior. Well, I was recognizing this long before I really understood the ins and outs of neurology. Uh, I, I believe that animal behavior was predictable. And uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Ogden Lindsley, uh, another student of Skinner's, uh, who had this phrase that he used so often, and uh, that his behavior is lawful. Now, uh, you know, you, you can say that it's not always necessarily rational. Uh, 
in my lectures, I point out a picture of 17 um, college students packed inside of a VW Beetle. Now, you know, that behavior is lawful, uh, but it's not exactly rational. Why in the hell would you pack 17 people inside of a VW? And I don't know. But nonetheless, the behavior to them at the time, it was something that they wanted to wanted to do and did. And it was organized behavior. It was lawful behavior. Yeah, I guess it's a example of motivation at work, right? <laughs> yes. And you, you can't reach inside their minds for sure and decide exactly why they are doing these things. But if you are guided by the idea that behavior is lawful, you can then have an organized program of training. Otherwise, you would just have to assume that behavior just pops up willy-nilly, not depending on environmental influences and the like. And it's, in other words, it's not predictable. And I found behavior to be predictable, and that comes right out of my very first study, uh, very first program that I did, and that was with coyotes. And if behavior was not predictable, I could not have done that. And I guess it wasn't until 30 years later that I really thought about it and did some investigation. And I realized as an undergraduate, I had done something that no one else, as far as I know of anyway, had done prior to that, uh, which seems rather strange why some you know, great, bright graduate student and go out there and investigate exactly what I did as an undergraduate just in a spare time. So that kind of brings us on as well, because you, you mentioned that, you know, you see yourself as a mechanic and there's some of the stuff that you, you mentioned there kind of goes to what you're doing now, which is working more with robotics. Am I right? Uh, yes. Uh, the idea of animals manipulating things or things manipulating animals in a certain way, giving signals and the like, uh, that I, I like the idea of this uh, human, animal and machine interface. And uh, there's a number of places where this is uh, going on in uh, military and, and other governmental agencies most of which I'm afraid I can't really discuss. No, that's understandable. Um, that's interesting, though, because I didn't realize that animals were still a part of it. I thought, when you mentioned this, I thought you meant more of like artificial intelligence kind of stuff. Uh, well, there's certainly artificial intelligence involved, but it, it, it is uh, so often uh, these wonderful robots really mechanically can't do very much. Uh, what they do, they do very well, but they don't do very much. And it takes a platform to move them, to get them from one place to another, and oftentimes in very, very difficult circumstances and over rather long distances. And that's where this early training that I did a long time ago with keep going signals and the like, uh, that's where it comes in in the, in the training aspects. I would imagine that all of this stuff that you've done – is going to be of great interest to people that are now starting to, you know, work in artificial intelligence and building these advanced robots. Because if they can try and replicate some of that, you know, some of the ways that uh, organisms work, then that would make a lot of sense to me. Well, uh, in indeed, uh, the animals have their own view of the universe, I'm sure. 
And they have been, to a certain degree, and, and don't push this too far, but to a certain degree, the animals have been programmed by their evolutionary past and their previous experience, particularly early previous experience when they're young animals. And what we do is we take advantage of the animal's experiences, previous experiences, and this evolutionary history, and we begin to modify that or uh, apply certain aspects. Uh, the, the parts that we bring out of the animal's behavior uh, we call responses. We're after a particular response. And some animals are better at certain responses than other animals. A, uh, a, a chicken knows how to scratch very well in order to get food. It scratches in the barnyard to get food. There's a scratch and a peck and a scratch and a peck. Well, that sort of, I will call it instinctive behavior, uh, is very easy to tap into and to apply and to use in, uh, um, you know, whatever it is you might want to use it for. Yeah, absolutely. You remind me completely of uh, Instinctive Drift, right? Like there's an article on that, isn't it? That, uh, yes. was written by yeah. the Breelands. Yeah, the, the Breelands are the ones who really came up with this idea uh, that so much of what animals do are, are guided by, influenced by, uh, all of this and all of these instinctive patterns and oftentimes particularly when an animal is under any particular stress or uh, where high ratios and others the animal has to do it many times in order to gain whatever it is thereafter uh, the animal begins to drift towards what it does naturally and uh that was one of the things that was really lacking in the uh, people that were involved in operant conditioning, uh, essentially very early on, and I'm talking about the 40s and 50s, that the people who were very heavy into operant conditioning uh, considered the animals as, uh, I won't say automatons, but that uh, they could have an animal do anything they wanted the animal to do. And uh, essentially, there was no biological influence on what they were doing. Uh, there are people who actually believed that and wrote that, which was really, I think, held back uh, the application of operant conditioning to uh, to animal training. Yeah, the, uh, um, yeah, because there's an article, isn't there, uh, by the Breelands called I think it's called the Misbehavior of Organisms. Is that right? Yes, misbehavior yeah, yeah. of organisms. That was in 1961. Yeah, I'll link that as well for for people that are interested. So, how do you feel about where animal training is at the moment? Uh, well, not where I would like it to be. Uh, where uh, people were all accepting uh, the the sorts of things that I've been describing about the idea of. Animal training is a technology, and and that does not, again, mean that animals are just machines, that we are just machines. But there is a certain predictability that uh, essentially is inherent in, in our makeup, our psychological makeup. And uh, if we make use of that, if we make use of our knowledge, our understanding of the science – the technology of animal training that we can get so much more and get so much more quickly 
um, in the the teaching that I do, I am saying that we are usually way behind the animal in terms of understanding uh, what it is the animal needs in order to accomplish what we want to accomplish. Um, people at the same time think animals are uh, too stupid or too smart. In other words, uh, they should be learning this faster than they should, and yet we don't provide them enough information for them to truly understand what it is that we want. And that's usually the problem, that we don't define the problem clearly enough for the animal, and it makes the animal look stupid where it's really ourselves that are not understanding the problem. And where do you see animal training going? What's the, what's the future of animal training? Do you think? Uh, well, the I wish it were further than it is, uh, and uh, there are uh, a, a lot of camps of animal training. Uh, we have this approach and that approach to uh, animal training, and. Uh, I, I wish it were not so. I, I wish indeed that it was all based on on a technology rather than on just individual pathways that people have taken trying to sell or market their own particular ideas. And uh, so often we expect so much of the animal and very little of ourselves. Uh, uh, and you, you might say either we think the animal is uh, is very bright or the animal is very stupid, and, uh, and neither is the case. The animal is not as smart as we are, but nonetheless, uh, we have to define what the issues are, and that is where we fall down as trainers, that we tend not to define the behavior that we're after, uh, and we don't uh, define for ourselves the procedures we're going to use to get this. Now, I, I made this sound very mechanical, but I've just tried to make it very easy to understand. That's the simple. Uh, that's the simple nature of the problem, is that we, as trainers, tend not to define the issues clearly. We let the animal try to figure it out, and sometimes the animal does, and sometimes the animal doesn't. But that's our fault as trainers. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks so much for coming on, Bob. And, and I, sure enough. And, and I wanted to ask you as well, is there, where can people find out more about you and the stuff that, you know, we've spoken about? Oh, goodness. Um, I, I really don't have too much out there. Um, I've got a, a website that I have not touched since 2003. Um, so well, it, it reflects when I was still giving chicken workshops. So uh, I anyway, know, I know you've got. I, a, I am semi-retired. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know you've got a book that you've you've republished from that you've uh, you've been involved in. Okay, I, I'm glad you reminded me of that, and thank you for that. Uh, the Breelands wrote a book. Uh, they began writing it in the late '50s, and they finished it uh, in. Uh, uh, 1966. Now, Keller had died in 65. Marion finished it. And it's called Animal Behavior. 
and I have just republished it. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, and that's the name of it, Animal Behavior. Now, what's interesting is there's still the old book out there, and uh, it's used, of course, uh, but um, that uh, people are spending, paying as much as $200 for the old book. Uh, the, the, the new book, is it's much less than that. Excellent. Uh, but nonetheless, it is uh, just a reprint, uh, an exact reprint of what uh, uh, the Breathings wrote with an introduction by myself and a description of the company that they had and the people that were involved in that company, including the Breelands and, and others. And other, I, I tried to expand the understanding of the people behind the book is what I try to do. Well, that's brilliant. And, and that's also a piece of animal trading history in itself. Mm-hmm. So yeah, thank, thanks for coming on. So, I uh, really appreciate that. That's, that's sure brilliant. Yep. Okay. Uh, appreciate your having me. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. That was a really special one to me. To get the opportunity to talk to Bob Bailey is incredible. Um, It's Christmas come early, as I said, on the podcast discussion group. And talking of which, you should join the podcast discussion group. So just head over to Facebook and search for Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group. Request to join and you can get involved with all the conversations that go on about the goings on uh, of the podcast. The other thing is this podcast is sponsored by Butternut Box. Butternut Box is a really cool, healthy, natural dog food based in the UK. They use home-cooked dog foods. It's perfectly portioned. It's delivered to your door. It's great for fussy eaters and dogs that have sensitive stomachs. And it's one of the few dog foods that has a five-star rating on All About Dog Food. So to get 75% off your first order, go to butternutbox.com slash nickbenger. Also, if you want the show notes for this episode which includes some of the links that we spoke about in the episode uh, that I said I would refer you to, then just go to nickbenger.com slash bob hyphen bailey. And also, you can get a free guide to engagement training, which is kind of my speciality, keeping your dog interested in you and having enjoyable walks off lead and not having to worry about them running off. Uh, You can get a free guide, which briefly introduces you to the topic of engagement training by going to barkplayteach.com slash the hyphen engagement hyphen guide. So hop over there, get your free engagement guide. And yeah, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, review, and do all that good stuff. See you guys.